This episode was brought to you by my dear cat Klaus's affinity for opening tiny packets filled with snacks forbidden to him. His most notorious feat was raiding an entire box of dried oatmeal and scattering the dried oats all over the carpet. Most recently, he has taken interest to my box filled with small packets of fruit snacks. But to date, I have yet to step on a tiny orange gummy. But time, as it always does, will tell. Greetings, dear listeners, to another episode of The Root of All Ope. I'm your host, Tatum Schrader. Now, let's kick off this episode by taking a bit of a step back and contemplating the state of current events here in the U.S. of A., It has been a year since the COVID-19 pandemic hit our shores and caused nationwide lockdown, mandatory face masks in public indoor spaces, at least here in Minnesota still, protests for the how perfectly American ideal of putting our frontline hourly wage laborers in peril so that old white people can have Sunday brunch at Perkins and get their bald spots covered up at the hairdresser again just like the good old days before a deadly disease changed everything. Minneapolis prepares for the Derek Chauvin trial in a few days, in which we'll see if a murderer is convicted as a murderer or not. And as we all file our tax returns while sipping on our poison of choice, and as the snow begins to melt into a lovely slush, and we tell ourselves that this time, when we say spring cleaning, we really, really, really do goddamn generally mean it this time, I think we're all a bit exhausted. I mean, to be frank, I have always been a homebody even before the lockdown, but can I say I was one of those people who learned how to bake bread or speak French or join an online exercise program to shed that muffin top? I mean, I could say it and you could probably believe it, but I just can't do it. We're all exhausted and we're all missing someone because of the pandemic, make no mistake. And can you believe the coup was already over two months ago? I mean, honestly, you could say that domestic terrorists storming the White House had happened two weeks ago or two years ago, and either way, I would just believe that anyway at this point. Time is wibbly-wobbly after all. But let's not get too deep into it. After all, my hope with this podcast is so it can be a step back from the world, a break from the harsh realities we face day in and day out. Not to smile and pretend that everything is fine, but to provide to my patrons what to others would be a glass of wine and a cheese platter, or a hot bubble bath, or watching Trixie and Katya review another Netflix film that you're on the fence on but checking out for yourself, and so on, you get the picture. So get comfortable, because we have some real shit to unpack today. And now for the Q&A. I did have two questions to answer from last week's episode. Uh, First question is, can we submit poetry to be read in future episodes? Um, The answer to this is I did a bit of modification on my tiers. So right now, if you look at the cappuccino or $12 a month tier, I did add on there that you can send me once a month a poem or an excerpt of your short story slash novel to read on the podcast. So if there's something that you really like for a poem or short story that you'd like me to read, or if it's your own work, you can send that to me if you like. Either one is fine. Um, Second question I got is, what is your favorite queer movie from the past? 
Now, to answer this question, I feel like it's fair to say that we're talking about movies that are specifically queer or LGBT, not ones that, you know, possibly are iconic in the gay community overall, but aren't in itself queer representation. To answer this one, I'm going to have to just say Rocky Horror Picture Show because, I mean, it is it is honestly a fun movie, even though it, in some ways it has not aged all that well. Um, and all in all, it is very much a classic, and the songs in it are really good. I really need to watch that one again sometime, but just the fact that it's so iconic and just such a big statement in the community, especially, you know, for the time it came out, it was a big deal. So that's going to be my answer for that week's question. But thank you for submitting the questions. Feel free to submit them in the comments for this episode if you want me to answer something in the next couple weeks. For today's reading, I have chosen the short story, The Last Night of the World by Ray Bradbury from his book, The Illustrated Man. Ray Bradbury's works have been the most influential on my own creative writing style to the point that I got a Bradbury homage tattoo on my right hand. I like this story because of its quiet subtlety, and it feels very quaint and cute and romantic in an almost ironic way, considering what the story is about. The Last Night of the World What would you do if you knew that this was the last night of the world? What would I do? You mean, seriously? Yes, seriously. I don't know. I hadn't thought. He poured some coffee. In the background, the two girls were playing blocks on the parlor rug in the light of the green hurricane lamps. There was an easy, clean aroma of the brewed coffee in the evening air. Well, better start thinking about it, he said. You don't mean it, he nodded. A war? He shook his head. Not the hydrogen or atom bomb? No. Or germ warfare? None of those at all, he said, stirring his coffee slowly. But just, let's say, the closing of a book. I don't think I understand. No, nor do I, really. It's just a feeling. Sometimes it frightens me. Sometimes I'm not frightened at all, but at peace. He glanced in at the girls and their yellow hair shining in the lamplight. I didn't say anything to you. It just happened about four nights ago. What? A dream I had. I dreamed that it was all going to be over, and a voice said it was. Not any kind of voice I can remember, but a voice anyway. And it said things would stop here on Earth. I didn't think too much about it the next day, but then I went to the office and caught Stan Willis looking out the window in the middle of the afternoon. And I said, a penny for your thoughts, Stan. And he said, I had a dream last night. And before he even told me the dream, I knew what it was. I could have told him, but he told me, and I listened to him. It was the same dream? The same. I told Stan I had dreamed it too. He didn't seem surprised. He relaxed, in fact. Then we started walking through the office for the hell of it. It wasn't planned. We didn't say, let's walk around. We just walked on our own, and everywhere we saw people looking at their desks or their hands or out windows. I talked to a few, so did Stan. And they had all dreamed? All of them. The same dream with no difference. Do you believe in it? Yes, I've never been more certain. And when will it stop? The world, I mean. Sometime during the night for us, and then as the night goes on around the world, that'll go too. It'll take 24 hours for it all to go. 
They sat a while, not touching their coffee. Then they lifted it slowly and drank, looking at each other. Do we deserve this? She said. It's not a matter of deserving. It's just that things didn't work out. I noticed you didn't even argue about this. Why not? I guess of a reason, she said. The same one everyone at the office had? She nodded slowly. I didn't want to say anything. It happened last night, and the woman on the block talked about it. Among themselves today. They dreamed. I thought it was only a coincidence. She picked up the evening paper. There's nothing in the paper about it. Everyone knows, so there's no need. He sat back in his chair, watching her. Are you afraid? No, I always thought I would be, but I'm not. Where's that spirit called self-preservation they talk so much about? I don't know. You don't get too excited when you feel things are logical. This is logical. Nothing else but this could have happened from the way we've lived. We haven't been too bad, have we? No, nor enormously good. I suppose that's the trouble. We haven't been very much of anything except us, while a big part of the world was busy being lots of quite awful things. The girls were laughing in the parlor. I always thought people would be screaming in the streets at a time like this. I guess not. You don't scream about the real thing. Do you know, I won't miss anything but you and the girls. I never liked cities or my work or anything except you three. I won't miss a thing except perhaps the change in the weather and a glass of ice water when it's hot and I might miss sleeping. How can we sit here and talk this way? Because there's nothing else to do. That's it, of course, for if there were, we'd be doing it. I suppose this is the first time in the history of the world that everyone has known just what they're going to do during the night. I wonder what everyone else will do now, this evening, for the next few hours. Go to a show, listen to the radio, watch television, play cards, put the children to bed, go to bed themselves, like always. In a way, that's something to be proud of, like always. They sat a moment, and then he poured himself another coffee. Why do you suppose it's tonight? Because. Why not some other night in the last century, or five centuries ago, or ten? Maybe because it was never October 19th, 1969, ever before in history, and now it is, and that's it. Because this date means more than any other date ever meant. Because it's the year when things are as they are all over the world, and that's why it's the end. There are bombers on their schedules, both ways across the ocean tonight, that'll never see land. That's part of the reason why. Well, he said, getting up, what shall it be? Wash the dishes? They washed the dishes and stacked them away with little neatness. At 8.30, the girls were put to bed and kissed goodnight, and the little lights by their beds turned on and the door left open, just a trifle. I wonder, said the husband, coming from the bedroom and glancing back, standing there with his pipe for a moment. What? If the door will be shut all the way, or they'll be left just a little ajar so some light comes in. I wonder if the children know. No, of course not. They sat and read the papers and talked and listened to some radio music and then sat together by the fireplace, watching the charcoal embers as the clock struck 10.30 and 11 and 11.30. They thought of all the other people in the world who had spent their evening, each in his own special way. Well, he said at last. He kissed his wife for a long time. We've been good to each other, anyway, 
Do you want to cry? he asked. I don't think so. They moved through the house and turned out the lights and went into the bedroom and stood in the night-cool darkness, undressing and pushing back the covers. The sheets are so clean and nice. I'm tired. We're all tired. They got into bed and lay back. Just a moment, she said. He heard her get out of bed and go into the kitchen. A moment later, she returned. I left the water running in the sink, she said. Something about this was so very funny that he had to laugh. She laughed with him, knowing what it was that she had done that was funny. They stopped laughing at last and lay in their cool night bed, their hands clasped, their heads together. Good night, he said after a moment. Good night, she said. And now for the movie review. The piece of cinematic masterpiece I'm discussing today was recommended to me by one of my listeners. It is one of those pieces of film that has been sitting in my watch list queue ever since I saw the cover title, one I knew I was obligated to watch at some point, considering I am a raging filthy queer, and that it was not only my inheritance, not only my honor, but my duty to indulge myself in this cornerstone of our history. Yes. Today we are delving into none other than But I'm a Cheerleader. Now, unlike the previous two films which I had seen a few times before reviewing for the podcast, this is a film I had never seen before. So, sit in a strange and uncanny way in your chair, cuddle up with your favorite flannel blanket, roll up the bottom of your jeans, put on the cranberries or girl in red for some background flair, and get comfy because it's about to become gayer than it has ever been in the podcast. A level of gayness the likes of which we have never been in the presence of before, until now. But first, let's set the stage for what this film is about. This 1999 satirical comedy, directed by Jamie Babbitt, follows a cheerleader named Megan, who is sent to a gay conversion camp called True Directions. Megan is played by our beloved goddess, our queen, the one and only Natasha Lyonne, who you may have seen in Orange is the New Black or Russian Doll. Now on the outside, Megan may appear to be a perfectly normal, feminine, heterosexual high schooler. I mean, after all, she is a cheerleader, after all. And everyone knows that nothing says, I am a straight woman who is only interested in straight male dick, like being a high school cheerleader. I mean, come on, surely seen every teenage rom-com in the 1970s and 80s would have taught us this by now. Director Jamie Babbitt was intentional in choosing that Megan would be a cheerleader. To quote an interview with Real.com, The reason we wanted to have the lead character be a cheerleader is because it was sort of the pinnacle of the American dream, and the American dream of femininity. The idea that girls grow up and they are brainwashed to want to be a cheerleader, while the guys play the aggressive sports and make millions of dollars. The girls cheer them on, make five cents, and show their legs. We just want it to be like this sort of stereotypical teen dream. However, Megan is not all she seems. Not only does she have posters of Melissa Etheridge in her room, but to make matters worse, she is a vegetarian and she does not even appear to enjoy kissing her boyfriend. Her parents make the ultimate decision that parents of dirty gays all around the globe have made at some point, one that surely could not have been made lightly, but nevertheless must be done. They ask RuPaul for help. Okay, 
Not exactly. That was my way of saying that RuPaul, then titled as RuPaul Charles for historical reference, co-stars in this movie. He plays Mike, an ex-gay employee at True Directions. He is out of drag and has facial hair and a lower-pitched voice. So, Megan's parents ask not-gay RuPaul for help to make sure their daughter does not go down the dark path of colored hair, beanies, and roller skates. They are extremely religious, mind you, so that sort of lifestyle will absolutely not do. And just like that, Megan's life changes forever. One moment, she is sucking face with a slightly less-than-average boyfriend and filling her locker with pictures of girls in bikinis. The next, she is packing her bags and heading off to True Directions. And this is where the film shows us all its colors, all its true high camp, and all its lesbian glory. Gay icon Clea Duvall of Girl Interrupted, The Grudge, and Zodiac co-stars as Graham, another lesbian sent to True Directions by her parents. For a good chunk of the movie, the audience follows Megan and Graham as they have the five steps of conversion shoved down their throats like so many pounds of non-fat Greek yogurt. These steps are as follows. 1. Admit you're gay. Essentially, say, I'm a homosexual, out loud. Step 2. Perform stereotypically gender-associated tasks, like cooking and cleaning for the girls, to rediscover their gender identity. Step 3. Trace down the root of what makes you gay. Maybe your mother ran the house, or maybe you listened to too much share as a child, and so on. Step 4. Demystify the other sex. Learn all of the cliches and stereotypes, and accept that here in True Directions, they are accepted as truth. And finally, step 5. Learn how to have proper heterosexual intercourse. The scene with step 5, involving the teens wearing full-body outfits that conveniently cover the genital areas while they practice simulated sex, includes my personal favorite quote from the film. Foreplay is for sissies. Real men go in, unload, and pull out. However, to make things complicated, the two lesbians begin developing romantic feelings for each other. As irony would have it, the camp's program also forces all of these incredibly horny and incredibly frustrated teenagers to be in the same close capacity with each other, forcing the lesbians to learn how to change dolls' diapers and forcing the gay men to chop wood together. Because in the world of But I'm a Cheerleader, the head of True Direction, Mary Brown, played by the wonderfully campy Kathy Moriarty, and her sidekick, not-gay RuPaul, have no idea just how arousing their steps make the children. Meanwhile, Megan and Graham get to know each other more and more, all the while trying to convince themselves they are no longer gay. Basically, the more they try to deny the fact they're gay in order to proceed with the program, the more their love for each other grows. Eventually, our group of beloved gays sneak away to a gay bar, thanks to the help of two XX gays who escaped the camp and now smuggle kids out to show them, in their words, that there are options. It is here that the kids are allowed to be themselves for the first time in the whole movie. Finally, they get to be around people who love them for who they really are and they do not have to hide it. It is a view of another world they've been shut away from all this time. And, most importantly, Megan and Graham share their first kiss. So, where does that leave Megan? Well, while I will not spoil the entire ending of the film, I can tell you with the utmost relief that this movie exists on the opposite spectrum of the barrier gaze trope, 
which I'll talk more about later on. But what's more, this is a story about Megan's own journey into the exploration of sexuality and gender identity. In the final scene of the movie, while she has indeed shed the clothing from True Directions, she's also still fully feminine in her own way. She even dons the cheerleading outfit to drive her point home. She is not shamed for being very girly, and is able to express her femininity in a way that is authentically her, not forced on her by True Directions. Megan has learned how to be herself, and yes, herself is a lesbian, no matter what her parents or not-gay RuPaul try to do to change that. But I'm a cheerleader is an incredibly visually breathtaking experience. Every color, every set piece, every light source, every costume is placed with careful intent, all pointing to the inner workings of the film and the themes it is both exploring and deconstructing. The color scheme in Megan's parents' home in the beginning has brown, neutral tones. Throughout the film, all the boys wear blue clothes and the girls wear pink clothes. And this is only the tip of the iceberg in the significance of color. In fact, everything about their lives in True Directions is centered around these colors. Megan's bed is pink. Her toothbrush is pink. The walls of the girls' dorm is pink. The colors are quite literally shoved down your throat as a constant reminder of what these boys and girls are expected to be and how they are supposed to perform in society. At the same time, the interior of True Directions appears very plastic and fake, almost like something out of the pastel suburbs of Edward Scissorhands, which Babbitt has mentioned was a huge influence on her. The colors are too bright, and all of the decor and clothing looks just a little too fake, further driving home the notion that this world Murray Brown and not-gay RuPaul have constructed, a perfect world in which no one is gay and everyone adapts perfectly to every strict gender role wholeheartedly, is not real. That gender and sexuality are fluid, and the idea that can be broken down into just one of two colors is plastic, fake. And even as the kids are sneaking back into true directions from the gay bar, we can see traces of pink and blue emerge onto the buildings, a symbol of the strict standards of manhood and womanhood they are returning to. Another interesting aspect of the film's visual cues is the overabundance of fake backgrounds at True Directions, large billboards depicting an artificial picturesque countryside or, as their absurdity progresses, culminating to a pink sky with clouds in a lighter shade of pink. Last but not least, if you pay close attention to the boys' dorms and the scenes with them, there are many phallic objects in sight, pointing to the sexuality they are simultaneously trying to repress but unable to contain. Kathy Moriarty's character is overly friendly, always dressed in an obnoxiously pink dress, but can quickly turn her heel and become a raging cunt as soon as you make any implication that her five-step program is not working on you. Her character reminded me a bit of Dolores Umbridge. She's almost like a drag queen playing Umbridge. And of course, right alongside her is not gay RuPaul. Seeing him threaten a bunch of gay boys that they will have to watch sports all weekend for staring at a scantily clad attractive man only demonstrates this ideal casting choice, especially because this came out in 1999 and not, well, 2021. Now, for this film, I will also give a heads up about some trigger warnings. From the beginning of the film, Megan's lesbianism is treated as evil and unnatural, something she must combat against. 
parents threaten that they will not give the children their funds for a car or college if they cannot take the gay out. The kids are also forced to explore the so-called root of what makes them gay, which plays into the false belief that people become non-straight because of something that happened to them at a young age, rather than an aspect of identity one is born with. One girl in particular is told she is homosexual because she was molested. They are also encouraged to hurt themselves every time they have a homosexual thought, which, to be fair, is also played for comedic effect in a couple scenes. A boy is locked in the doghouse overnight as punishment for making out with another boy. There is also a scene where the kids are forced to picket a gay couple's house, waving signs with homophobic statements on them. The F-slur, as well as multiple other anti-gay slurs, are used recurrently throughout the film. For a more comprehensive list of potential triggers, I would recommend consulting DoesTheDogDie.com. Now, as someone who was raised in a not-too-unfamiliar environment, a lot of these scenarios and one-liners do hit a personal note. For others, certain scenes may hit too close to home or might as well have been shot with a personal camera at some moment of your past. However, for clarification's sake, as heavy as these topics are, I felt that the film treaded these topics much like that purple mattress commercial where a raw egg is placed on a mattress and a person sits on it, yet the egg remains intact. It's portrayed in a context that depicts its absurdity for what it really is. The black comedy genre for this film allows the viewers to, rather than forced to feel sickened and brought back to previous trauma, are allowed to laugh at how ridiculous strict gender roles and stereotypes and homophobic rhetoric really are. For example, there is a particularly hilarious scene where Megan denies that she is a lesbian under the impression that everybody looks at girls like that, but she had never considered that not everyone does just that. She was simply under the assumption that it was completely normal and in no way a sign of lesbianism that she enjoyed admiring female bodies. When the opposite is made clear to her, she has a breakthrough moment when she states out loud for the first time that she is a homosexual. What makes this especially hilarious to me is because the exact same thing happened to me when I was a kid. When I was 13, I had a huge crush on Kate Winslet as Rose from the film Titanic, and I remember lamenting this, only to be told that I was just admiring her body because I wanted to look like her. So of course, it is completely normal to watch the portrait scene from that movie and think about Kate Winslet's eyes and lips and, of course, other parts. Of course, years later, I realized what was really going on, but that's just an example of something I grew up with being validated and depicted in this film, in a very comedic way that allowed me to laugh, not at myself, but at the ideas I had to unlearn. It is also very important to talk about the people behind this film. The director, Jamie Babbitt, is of course a lesbian herself. She hired screenwriter Brian Wayne Peterson, who is also gay and had his own experience with conversion therapy. Babbitt's then-girlfriend, Andrea Sperling, produced the film as well. Babbitt had worked with Clea Duvall previously in a short film and knew she wanted to do a full-length feature with her. Duvall, according to some sources I found online while researching this episode, used her network of friends to pull together a cast for the film, and Natasha Lyonne asked to be in the movie after seeing the script in Duvall's car. My point is, this is not a film made by straight people trying to understand LGBT culture or post straight guilt about conversion therapy. This is by the gays for the gays. 
More specifically, this is a film that approaches queer trauma in a context that allows people who have experienced this trauma to look upon it while enjoying a visually appealing, devastatingly sarcastic, and bubbly comedic narrative. It allows us to laugh at the absurdity of some of the ideas put into our heads by homophobes, while celebrating that there is no right or wrong way to be gay. Certainly, there is a place for more serious depictions of gay conversion therapy and its long-lasting effects, but how often do we get queer comedies in which the lesbians have a happily ever after? I think Jamie Babbitt herself explained it best in an interview with Variety, quote, At the time, there really hadn't been lesbian comedy, and I think the community was so devastated by AIDS that there wasn't a lot of comedies going on in gay cinema. I think it upset people that I made a comedy about a really serious subject matter. I also made the film when I was in my 20s, and I also was part of the community and felt like there was room to laugh at things. I wanted to skewer not only my community, but also just the absurdity of gay conversion. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard of the barrier gays trope, but I want to take a moment to talk about that, specifically because of its absence in But I'm a Cheerleader. To explain this trope, I'm going to start by taking this quote from tvtropes.org. This trope is the presentation of deaths in LGBT characters where these characters are nominally able to be viewed as more expendable than their heterosexual counterparts. In this way, the death is treated as exceptional in its circumstances. In aggregate, queer characters are more likely to die than straight characters. Indeed, it may be because they seem to have less purpose compared to straight characters, or that the supposed natural conclusion of their story is an early death. As for why this trope is a thing, here are some things to consider. It might be because gay people often been portrayed as depraved or villainous. Thus, not only does their death provide a suitable punishment for said depravity and villainy, but it solidifies the moral standpoint of the story and that this sort of behavior will not be tolerated, much less validated. Examples of this trope can be seen in media like Skyfall, Inuyasha, Pulp Fiction, The Silence of the Lambs, and Outlander. And then we have the flip side of this trope, which became more popular during and after the AIDS crisis. This one portrays the gay character as much more sympathetic, a victim of circumstance and usually illness, and after teaching the straights such important lessons as the meaning of life and how to organize your wardrobe, they die a noble death because they are a cinnamon roll too good for this world, too pure. We see this trope in Philadelphia, Dallas Buyers Club, 13 Reasons Why, and Rent. Now, it is true that LGBT people do live at higher risk generally, and there is no denying the impact the AIDS crisis had on our community. And in the stories written by gays for gays to talk about our stories, our losses and our pain, that is one thing. But that is not what Barrier Gaze is about. This is about stories written almost entirely, if not entirely, by a cisgender straight team, in which there are only a small handful of LGBT characters, or perhaps just one, and their kill rate is much higher than the rest of the straight cisgender cast. In fact, there are so many killed-off lesbian and bisexual female characters that they even get their own trope name, Dead Lesbian Syndrome. Autostraddle.com has a full list of how many there are, and there are a lot. Some of the infamous examples of barrier gays 
have been including but not limited to NYPD Blues Kathy, 24's Bridget, The Walking Dead's Denise and Alicia, Jane the Virgin's Rose, Pretty Little Liars May, House of Cards Rachel's, The O.C.'s Marissa, The L. Ward's Dana, and many, many, many more. Of course, last but not least is The 100's Lexa, which outraged the internet so much that it caused a major backlash from the fandom and sparked a new wave of discussion about this trope. So, why am I talking so much about this trope? Well, again, just to make it very, very clear that But I'm a Cheerleader not only stands in stark contrast to this trope, but it does so proactively. In Babbitt's words from that same Variety interview, she also went on to say, quote, I also wanted to tell a romantic story and be revolutionary where the lesbians actually end up in love and alive at the end of the movie, which had not really been told at the time. Everyone always died or were killed. So, while I may have spoiled most of the ending of this film, I could not help but feel a sense of relief, vindication, and refreshment. That this is not a movie that is all about our suffering and how miserable our lot in life must be. Not another Boys Don't Cry or Carol or Brokeback Mountain. But it's a movie about who we are allowed to be. And that Megan and Graham should not be ashamed of their love for each other. Now one thing the film does seem to sorely lack is a more in-depth exploration of gender identity. Especially when it comes to the transgender community of which I am a part of. Which is one part about the film that I will say could have made it feel a bit more complete. Especially since a huge part of the film's themes are all about gender roles, gender stereotypes, what those mean when one is wrestling with being gay, and how to reconcile gender with gender roles in the society you live in with your sexuality. Yet there is not a single mention of someone challenging the gender they were assigned at birth. Not that I was expecting a full-on rundown of the trans experience from a 1999 film, but in a film that satirically forces girls to wear pink and boys to wear blue, I did notice its absence. Fortunately, Babbitt is all too aware of this in her work. Again, in that same Variety interview, she explains it like this, quote, The trans community has been much more accepted and is much more vocal in the community now. Although those ideas were in the film, there's not a real trans character in the movie. So... I think in that way, it shows its age. It's still a really fun, funny movie, which is what I always want it to be. I loved Clueless, and I want to make a gay Clueless. Interestingly enough, But I'm a Cheerleader initially got slammed with an NC-17 rating, solely for a scene in which two women make out and are implied to have sex. Although, compared to other sex scenes from R-rated or even PG-13 films at the time, it was pretty tame. However, upon trimming down this scene, the film ended up with a solid R rating. Although the film was not initially a commercial success, it has since become a cult classic, and it also helped launch Natasha Lyonne and Clea Duvall's careers. All things considered, I feel it has aged pretty well, much better than I would have thought it would. Some parts do feel a tad dated, most notably the fact that RuPaul is there, but for a lesbian comedy made in 1999, it really does hold up to this day, and there's a lot to take from it even now. The issues the characters face in the film are ones many of us still face today, and although the image of the American blonde cheerleader is more of a 90s to early 2000s archetype, 
I do feel that a Gen Z audience would not need the inside joke in the film's title explained to them. To further drive home the cult classic status of this film, a few years back there was a Castro screening of But I'm a Cheerleader and included a drag pre-show in which all the drag queens dressed up as characters from the movie. Now, I did not have the time to go into this, but in preparing for this podcast, I did find a wonderful BuzzFeed article written by a lesbian and her own experience in the late 90s seeing this movie and the impact it had on her. It is a wonderful read and just further emphasizes how representation in the media really matters. I have included a link to that article in the description of this episode. I've also included a 2020 interview with Natasha Lyonne and Clea Duvall, reflecting on the film just over two decades after its release, and I do recommend reading that as well. However, I think the influence of this film can be summarized in a tweet Clea Duvall posted in June 2020. Quote, I was very closeted when we made this film. Countless people over the years have told me how this movie made them feel seen and helped them come out. I want them to know their words and strength did the same for me. Currently, But I'm a Cheerleader is available to stream for free on Tubi as well as Pluto TV. Again, both 100% free streaming services. You just have to put up with ad breaks. There is also the director's cut of But I'm a Cheerleader currently available to rent on Amazon and Vudu. Tune in again two weeks from today when I'll be reviewing a film straight from the mind of George Lucas, directed by Gary Rydstrom and produced by Lucasfilm, and inspired by Shakespeare's A Midsummer's Night's Dream, Strange Magic. I'll see you then, and as always, thanks for listening.